0: Welcome to On the Table, a podcast about board games, card games, and tabletop war games. Welcome back to episode 116 of the On the Table Gaming Podcast. I'm Chase, and today we're speaking with Simon, game designer and past developer on A Song of Ice and Fire, the miniatures game, Leo Almeida, about what A Song of Ice and Fire was like under his watch in 2018 and 2019, exploring topics of balance and game design and development as a whole. But before we do that, we'll be checking in on our weekly A Song of Ice and Fire segment, The Coach's Corner, where we are joined by a guest coach to give tips, tactics, and just to inspire us about trying some new things out. If A Song of Ice and Fire isn't your thing, feel free to jump ahead about 10 minutes to get right into our discussion with Lee Almeida. With that being said, it's time for another quick check-in with The Coach's Corner, and we're going to be talking with Brett Land for the 2021 US National A Song of Ice and Fire champion. Brett, what do we got today for any advice,
1: hot takes, or challenges for A Song of Ice and Fire? Hey Chase, today um, I want to talk about uh, a neutral unit that I believe is probably seeing a little bit less play than it should because it's kind of being drowned out by the popularity of Flaytemen, but I want to touch on Hedge Knights today because I think they're a really strong unit and they have some really nice synergies with a couple of factions in particular, but Uh, With every faction who can take Hedge Knights, they can take one NCU who I think really makes them shine.
0: Well, let's check them out. I'm excited. uh, These are beautiful sculpts. So I'm excited to to learn me some
1: neutral ways since I mostly play Free Folk. Absolutely. So the, the Hedge Knights box is really versatile because it functions as a standalone unit or it essentially functions as an attachment box for four attachments because you've got the Glory Seeker and the Fortune Seeker. Additionally, I think these are some of the best sculpts that we've seen coming out from CMON. They've got so much cloak space and blank shields, and you've got your imagination can just go wild because they're hedge knights. So you can do any color scheme that you want, and these guys will fit in properly because they're not necessarily dedicated to any house. So from the hobby side, I really like them. But when you break it down and you look into what this unit brings to the table, they're actually a pretty stout offensive profile. They've got seven and four attack dice that hit on a three-plus, and they've always got Sundering. Now, their defensive profile starts off a little bit vanilla with a four-plus defensive save and a seven-plus morale, but that becomes significantly better when you control the wealth zone, it increases to a three-plus defense and a six-plus morale. Now, this is the same defensive profile you see with units like Tully Cavaliers, Flayedmen and Knights of Castle Rock. And we know that uh, heavy cavalry has always been a popular choice, and it's always been something that's somewhat tanky but also offensive at the same time. So, it seems that the key with the Hedge Knights is controlling the wealth zone. So, a neutral NCU that comes to mind is the newly reworked Peter Baelish. Now, Peter Baelish has always been good and versatile, but what he brings to the Hedge Knights is the ability to claim the Wealth Zone, even if you don't necessarily need it. So you've got a lot of options when you activate Peter when you have Hedge Knights. You can claim the Wealth Zone and, again, use whichever zone you'd like. If the if the Hedge Knights are engaged, you can use the Wealth Zone and replace it with the Melee Attack Zone, and then the Hedge Knights can make a Melee Attack, but they'll be beefed up with their defensive stats for any swings back. You can additionally use him to, you know, claim the Tactics Zone and... Uh, put some condition tokens out and fill up your cards. You can use it for the maneuver zone to either get the hedge knights closer or to do a a, a key retreat. Uh, the, flex, the, the possibilities are endless with Baelish, but the point being, you can take the wealth zone without necessarily having to use it, and that will immediately set the hedge knights off. Additionally, he's got his once-per-game ability that comes with Master of the Game, so in a round where your opponent's going first and you suspect that they're going to start battering on your hedge knights before they're beefed up, at the start of the turn, that can be friendly or enemy, you can use Peter Baelish to count as controlling the wealth zone for that round, and that'll ensure that your hedge knights don't just die very quickly to that uh, start of the round attack. So Peter Baelish is really nice.
0: Uh, Any particular faction that you would uh, be interested in experimenting with them that you think have maybe good synergy combinations?
1: I think Baratheons actually have some really strong synergy with another NCU. This is Alistair, the uh, Lord of Brightwater. uh, With his shifting loyalties? Yes. So Alistair Florent, the Lord of Brightwater, Brightwater, has an ability that's kind of similar to Peter Baelish, but it's just different enough that these two work together so well when you're bringing Hedge Knights to the table. Alistair allows you, when he activates, you can remove one of his order tokens. After he claims the zone on the board and resolves that effect, you can swap him to a different spot on the tactics board, even displacing another NCU and placing them on the zone that Alistair claimed. So the wealth zone is always a popular zone, uh, particularly if your opponent's running something like Hedge Knights themselves. So you can essentially use Peter Baelish every round that you go first to take the Wealth Zone for yourself and then use either the Wealth Zone or a different effect. But on the turns where they want to take the Wealth Zone, you can simply activate Alistair and then move there NCU off of the Wealth Zone. And essentially between Peter Baelish's Master of the Game and Alistair's three order tokens, you should have control of the Wealth Zone the entire game. This becomes phenomenal for Hedge Knights because their, their point cost is seven. And this is considering that... Some Some of the time, at least half of the time, they expect that the the Hedge Knights won't have that stout defensive profile. This is kind of a way of circumventing that and ensuring that your Hedge Knights are always offensive and defensive. And you can really build lists around that unit of Hedge Knights and those two NCUs. It's 15 points out of your list, but that's a really good centerpiece to have in the list because you're freeing yourself up from a point that you would have had to spend on Champions of the Stag or Flayed Men. I call it a little bit of a budget build, but oftentimes you're just needing that Sundering to get through some of the some of the more heavily armored targets and hedge knights can fill that role really really nicely.
0: Now there's a we try to keep these somewhat short so people can maybe get inspired go try some things out try a different tactic. But if they're not a Baratheon player, what might be some other interesting synergies or just people to have in the back of your mind that they might synergize well in other factions? Yeah,
1: there's definitely some other synergies that exist. You've got Tyrion Lannister and he's got the tactics card False Agenda. Now this is similar to Alistair Florent, but again it's just subtly different enough that it's different and it works well. False agenda can force the opponent to move to a different unclaimed zone after they resolve the effect of the zone of choice. So if they're claiming the wealth zone to keep it from you or to use it for themselves, you can play this card and then you can remove them from the wealth zone and place them on a different zone. And then that frees up the wealth zone for you to take with your next activation.
0: There's a little bit similarity there. What about with like the neutral faction? And like if they're playing, you know, on your home court here, what's a good synergy within that list?
1: Ruth Bolton, the leech lord, can play whispered threats. Now, this one doesn't force them off of a zone like some of the other, you know, NCUs that we've discussed, but what it can do is it punishes that NCU for claiming a zone that round. So, if they're really wanting to claim the wealth zone to take that away from you, you'll be able to place a panicked and vulnerable token out on their combat units after they resolve the zone's effect. So, you're essentially just punishing them because they chose to place an NCU on the board. Now, those vulnerable and panic tokens can come in really handily for you, you know, to help you push some of that damage that you need to get through. Additionally, Additionally, Dario Naharis, the Stormcrow Captain, has a card sell Sword Negotiations. This allows him to control the Wealth Zone for the round, and it's similar to Master of the Game because it can be the key to fortifying those Hedge Knights for a round, or two if you're lucky enough to draw both of those cards. It can also remove some of your obligation. If you don't really need to use the Wealth Zone, and you'd rather use Peter Baelish for something else, you can secure the zone just by playing that card. Well, oh man, there's
0: a lot to take in there, but... I'm excited to to try these out. As I start to dabble with some non-free folk lists, I'm going to start trying to work hedge knights in. Certainly more, like you said, I love this. They are fantastic. Mine, unfortunately, have not yet been painted up. But I think I'm gonna. I think I might try and see if I can borrow some of my buddy Josh's Baratheons and uh, try them out first in there. I think that initial combo, that initial combo you mentioned with Peter and uh, Alistair Florent, that sounds pretty amazing. Yeah,
1: it's it's really good and it has a lot of flexibility. Uh, you can also end up using Alistair to claim the combat zone, which is an equally popular zone. And when you claim the combat zone with the Hedge Knights, each time they make a melee attack, the defender becomes vulnerable. So you can really, really juice these guys up if you control both of these zones. And I think Alistair and Peter Baelish can get you there.
0: So if you're listening, head on over to songoficefirebuilder.com. Make some lists using your Hedge Knights and share them with us. Let us know what you think and, and how this works out for you maybe you've got some other additional cool combos or supporting pieces you like to use with your hedge knights. We'd love to hear about it. Brett, thanks so much for for coaching us through some of this. I'm excited to see what people come up with. Absolutely. All right, now I'm really excited for our next guest. Today, we're joined by Simon, game designer, Leo Almeida, designer of games like Masters of the Universe, Clash Fraternia, Starcadia Quest, among several others. He's also been a developer on a number of games, including a lead developer role on Bloodborne, one of my personal favorites. And you might have seen some of his work as a developer on Side, Green Horde, Rising Sun, Ankh, but today we're most interested in his role as the original developer on A Song of Ice and Fire, The Minters game. Leo, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
2: Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to hear you like Bloodborne also.
0: I didn't know that. Oh my gosh, yeah. So I've got a chance to talk to you a little bit because of Master of the Universe Clash Fraternia, but I'm excited to, to kind of pick your brain about the early days of A Song of Ice and Fire, the miniatures game. Yeah, How did you first get involved with A Song of Ice and Fire, the miniatures game?
2: Well, so ever since I, uh, I joined Simon in 2017, Michael was already uh, working in, at the game, playing around with miniatures, the tactics board, and several other aspects of the game, which were still like very unpolished, but already we could see the skeleton of what would become, a great miniature game particularly before song i haven't much uh, i didn't have much like contact with other miniatures but once uh fabio tola which was the lead developer of the core box asked me to help him out as i had a good uh, previous like contact with Uh, lifestyle games and competitive strategy games i started studying a lot i actually fabio introduced me to a couple miniature games i went to his club also so yeah uh and that's how i actually first came to know that the game existed and working on it that michael was here in brazil and he showed me the game i I played a couple times and then i started working on it with fabio Tola. Okay. Yeah. So, the, the so in the ha- beginning,
0: you were primarily working with Fabio and Michael, but this is like uh, you didn't work a lot with Eric at this point.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, Eric' uh, influence in the game, uh, it was more as a vision part. I guess he he was. He, he, had, he had a lot of impact, but at the time he was a director of game design, so he wasn't very close to the game, like uh, every stage of it. So he was more about the vision and how the game fell and stuff. So yeah, my my, close, my work was more closely to Fabio Tola and and Michael. Were,
0: were you a, a fan of the Game of Thrones series? Like, had you experienced
2: the books or seen the show? Yeah, the series very much so. I I started reading the books after I got the after I was working on it because the licenses of the book. Yep. <laughs> So we
0: had a little bit of catch up there, you gotta be like, I gotta read all these books now.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was very pleasant actually.
0: Have you ever had a game you were working on where you weren't as big a fan of like the lore, or the backstory? Like, what's the backstory on one of your other games like uh, Sugar Blast? Is there a, a complicated story behind all that?
2: Well, Sugar Blast, my like first ever uh lead role, so I, I can't be like that, but <laughs> I guess I historically for the games I've played and from the majority of it, I don't care much about lore and history, story and stuff. After starting working on it, I pay attention so it is, like, loyal to its original IP. But mm-hmm. uh, particularly for me, I, I don't care much about what story on games look uh, like when playing it. But for Game of Thrones and, like, Munchkin and other game I have worked on it was very important for me because i needed that the players that wanted that felt like we're buying the game or wanted to have the feel of any of the ips that they were buying it had to be an enjoyable experience so i paid close attention and we made like some like changes like punctually that made big changes that felt it was like more close to the lore.
0: You know, were the mechanics of A Song of Ice and Fire always as we see them now? Like when you were brought on board as the lead developer, was there any things that were still in chain, in flux? Or were the mechanics basically locked
2: down? No, actually, a lot of things didn't exist. Like panic was still a thing. I I know it changed a lot after. Also, I had I got my hands off the game, Mm -hmm. but a lot of a lot of change a lot has changed. Like March pivot was actually a big change. Also, Uh, retreat. A lot of these were very, very. Simple before,
0: and they, you say that the march was different. You mean it wasn't just like you know, double move
2: and a pivot? March was the one that changed the last, to be honest. But gotcha. retreat was different. You, you had to like get a uh, panic and suffered penalties. Also, oh, interesting, yeah. Based on it, was also based on who you were like uh, what's retreating the, from. What's the actual like term isn't it engaged or engaged yes you're engaged yeah, so yeah you would suffer penalties based on who you who you're engaged to wow
0: that's crazy i think some of those basic elements are so different was yeah. the tactics board or the influence board as some call it was um was that pretty ironed out as like a thing that was well established by that point
2: yeah that was definitely something we won in the game i think that's the biggest difference comparing to other uh, war games that you have miniatures and i think that's really the the really key that made the game be so good and popular, I think. But uh, some things changed. We felt, especially the panic test one, was one of the most troublesome. But uh, the rest was pretty well-established, like move, attack, uh, those were pretty straight up. What What was the
0: best and worst thing about being a developer for a Song of Ice and Fire the Miniatures game?
2: Well, I got to learn more about the whole war game community and like story behind it and how they worked uh having played lots of lifestyle games before like computer games card games and actually knowing more it's nice to see how much they are alike and also how much they they differ from each other which gives you a lot of perspective when making more games Uh, even if it's not related to that like See how, how people feel about things is really nice. I guess that's the best part. Uh, knowing more, learning about the whole universe is really good. The worst part, I guess, working with Michael. No, <laughs> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. nah, I'm kidding. Nah. Are we safe? Are we in are <laughs> <we> danger? <laughs> No, that's fine if you put it on it, but it's a joke. It's a joke. That was not the worst part. Uh, actually, when I first started, like, when I first joined Simon, my first two projects were with Michael, which was Smog and uh, Song of Ice and Fire. And Michael, if you know him, he's a grumpy guy. And I, I, I like to believe we're friends now, good friends. We we have some, some connection. But before, I couldn't really tell... <laughs> Because he's really close, like closed up. So, but,
0: but it was nice. Uh, You'd see, basically, like besties now, right? Especially after yeah. like He Man, Master of the Universe. Yeah, we're besties. Okay, you could say that. I hope. So, so what was the worst then? What was if it if it wasn't wasn't not it wasn't working with
2: Michael? Uh, I guess. Balancing balancing it was really hard because when you make actually any lifestyle game, you have to balance things thinking about the, whoever buys the game and about the competitive scene, right? You should always focus on the competitive scene because whoever's buying the game casually isn't really going to be a problem much. Only mm-hmm. if in cases like... That's a good example. Old day panic tests with the crown of the tactics board would possibly, depending on... On the team that you would have of uh, NCU's, uh, you would just uh you would just like kill a whole unit in the first round, which was yeah, very I, frustrating. So <laughs> I lost some Free Folk Raiders back in the day that way. <laughs> yeah, so that was very frustrating if you're a casual player, right? So th- that was something that was really hard to balance on because we felt it was. I mean, it changed so clearly; it wasn't the the best, and I think the change was for good but well uh, well, that's
0: kind of like an interesting thing right so as the the games actually evolved quite a bit since what was that 2018 when when did you stop when did you step down as a developer how involved were you in the development of some of the factions like the night's watch or the big fan favorites the free folk
2: yeah so i was the lead on night's watch and also free folk i stepped down at, at at the deliver of free folk in 2019 so after that i I haven't touched the game. I, I have helped Curry at the beginning, but after that, n- not really much work. So that's fantastic.
0: So you were involved with the Free Folk. That's, uh, that was a pretty nice faction. It's, it continues to be, but I definitely am uh, a big fan. <laughs> so well done there, sir. Thanks,
2: thanks, thanks. I mean, uh, my work as a developer is, uh, I think you like the the whole aesthetics and, uh, yeah, and the- Yeah, and the mechanics and different. how they, they're always kind of keeping on your toes. Yeah. Uh, of course, I had some impact there, but it's mostly Michael. Uh, Michael is—it's a great designer. Any game he touches, he—he's just so creative with the abilities and like the giants, the way they they work, and the other free folk things. I think they're so good. Of course, I helped—not not giving no yeah. credit to me, but uh, <laughs> it's definitely definitely the the cool the cool parts are definitely. Cool.
0: Did you find any factions like particularly difficult to balance? Like I know when Free Folk came out initially, especially with their (laughs) insignificant keyword and then the wounds they would take out of the old panic system. I mean, there's a lot going on there. Was that particularly challenging?
2: Yeah, Free Folk was hard. Also Lannister. Stark was definitely the easiest one. Uh, Lannister was kind of hard at the beginning because of the panic test, the way it worked. And also Cersei. But... Uh, the hardest one definitely be free folk because of the panic tests, and also like since we didn't have many factions back then, the way that they would match would really differ. So like matchup wise, so mm-hmm. against Lannisters, it wasn't really a fair matchup which was really hard to think of because I I didn't like the idea of having like four factions and one of the matchups is just so unbalanced, so. Interesting. So, you know,
0: one of the things that's happened since uh, you stepped down as developer is that games evolved in a lot of ways. So things like panic tests have gone from, you know, the 2 d six. And then you you take the difference in wounds to uh, initially a D3 plus one. And now, if you fail a panic test, you just take a, fl- a straight D3 wounds. Yeah. Do you see that as kind of, does that make sense then? Like, so as you kind of, you have more room to balance now because it's a it's a smaller variable. Do you see kind of maybe some of these mechanics taking in a way that makes it actually easier for people like Fabio or Michael to kind of balance the game?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it, like, I think the, the recent change on, I don't know if it's recent, but this change about the d3 wounds it's very positive actually before when with with fabio tola also i think we before wanted to do that but we felt i mean in as a group with michael of the three of us felt that having panic tests be punitive was an important thing for uh balancing a an unit and unit right so yeah uh which made sense back then but i do think that for balance for balancing and also not very much random results which was the biggest swing also like the the panic test i think it was a good change yes
0: there's been a lot of mechanics now that i've moved towards that so a lot of the things like you know uh tully sworn shields blocking d3 hits now they block like uh, a number like plus their number of ranks and it's been tied a lot more to ranks. so it kind of makes it less random so i think in theory that makes it maybe easier to balance you had to do all the hard work back then now they have a much more uh, streamlined system for that i wish <laughs> you wish it was like that back then yeah i was it
2: <laughs> i like simple stuff i actually uh, i rather have a lot of more simple stuff mm-hmm. uh, yeah. but yeah that's fine
0: you know, how, did you have any window into like what the future of the game looked like back then? So recently, for example, we've had the Mormont She-Bears and Mag the Mighty, this giant commander for Free Folk came out. Um oh, that came re- out recently? Were you aware of those miniatures or concepts from when you were a developer?
2: Mag the Mighty, I actually developed I don't know how much what? changed from back then. I
0: haven't even got my hands on him yet. He's he's uh, still shipping slowly to the US, but I'm excited to get him. So you I mean, were aware, you know, that's, you know, a couple of years
2: ago then. Yeah. Two years yeah. ago? I actually developed it. Uh, I That's mean, I, I, re- I remember delivering it to Michael. Actually.
0: That's amazing. Okay. So, you know, who knows how things have changed in the new update? Oh, oh yeah. I, it probably
2: changed a lot. But, well, that, that'd be
0: a fun like comparison uh, back then and now. But do uh, you have the card? Actually, I do have I'm the card. You curious. should head over to a Song of Ice and Fire builder. Okay. To I don't know if you remember a Song of Ice and Fire builder. Yeah, one yeah, of our yeah. Early fan right. actions. So no, he
2: changed a lot. I, I don't know if I can say this actually, but. Actually, it's already launched, so I guess we can talk about the process. So, so how is it different? Yeah, yeah. Before the the giant part would would be the same health. He would need two hits to get a wound, things like that. But he, his attack was very different. Before he wouldn't like roll seven dice. He would just deal straight up D three wounds, things like that. You would roll how many wounds you would deal. You, you would, like pass defense you were just okay,
0: kind of like a, a regular giant then yes
2: yes they, they were pretty much the same also he he would have he's a commander also right yeah so some of these tactics cards look familiar oh i remember the trample trample one i still remember that yeah especially because some of them were his cards yeah like what was already his original ability like trample like close to
0: it uh so hey, here's a question so we have uh, the 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 mormon she bears and uh mag the mighty and uh <clears throat> Well, what about the uh, the Dornish units? Were those out yet? Do you remember those ones? Okay.
2: <laughs> uh, I only worked in Three Folk and Night's Watch aside from Lancer and Stark. But I've also seen... We're holding out hope for Martells in the future. Okay, but uh, <laughs> She-Bears, you said that they launched? Yeah, I remember working on them also. Oh, they're very different, actually. But yeah.
0: So now you, you've handed things over to Fabio Curry and you guys are friends, you kind of still talk. Do you think there's a difference between developing the game when you at your stage when there's like only four factions and developing the game now when there's, you know, so many factions to deal with?
2: Yeah, I think it's hard to create new uh, new aspects in the game, like when you would make new mechanics and new ways of making units. I remember when we made pyromancers, which were like very different because they were ranged units that ignored armor. How would you balance that? And those were really hard to do. And I think that every time you get a new mechanic, especially with the number of mechanics that the game already has, it's definitely really hard. But yeah, I guess also in the beginning because of that creating new units as a stand like alone like comparing them to each other to see if they're balanced and see how they would function in gameplay is really hard. So and and again like if you would change a whole core aspect of the game like panic tests that mm-hmm. would also put everything in, in jeopardy, right? Like you would have to bounce everything out again. So. so we're
0: we're actually coming off of the 2021 update, which is like they went through and retooled every unit. So it was like a Herculean effort to Ooh. kind of bring things into a new a new era. And uh, you know, we're moving forward from there, it seems. So there's, yeah. been a, there's been a lot of work, but you you laid a lot of the groundwork and tip of the hat to you, sir, for for your free folk work, especially um, you know, I've been playing for the, you know, I played Lannisters for a little bit out of the starter set until the Free Folk came out. And then I really, I've been playing them ever since. So I've had a lot of fun times and experiences with some of the stuff you worked on. So much appreciated.
2: I like Free Folk a lot. I try to just Swarm. Like, uh, not enough, like, even like trays for us to play with because I, I was trying to make like a Zurich army. Yeah. Yeah, oh, man. Well, I don't know if you're aware. So December 4th. Do those still work?
0: Now they're a little bit different. The Free Folk aren't quite as much of a a horde army per se Uh as they are more of a, you can like move abilities from attachments around. So you're still trying to gang up, but it's kind of more about the attachments. Each Free Folk Raider now has adaptive. So you put a unit, an attachment in there and its points cost is reduced by one. Oh, cool. So you try and, you know, get a unit and then you can have tactics cards that you share the abilities between units.
2: Wait can you have like free? does it cost less can it cost zero? put a, an attachment in
0: there basically for free if it's one point so nice. you get to basically have each of them be like very each one of them is like literally a a raiding party and the different leader for it kind of changes the way that raiding that raider group works in your Jeez. army that's sounds so hard
2: Sounds hard,
0: but it's definitely fun. So here's the thing. So I don't know if you're aware, December fourth, twenty twenty, was a day that will live on. I can I don't think I can say infamy. I guess that's December eighth. That's Pearl Harbor. But uh-huh. in, in December fourth, twenty twenty, the current lead developer, Song of Ice for Song of Ice and Fire, Fabio Ars is the Fury Curry, uh, actually defeated Michael Chenal on a Simon battle report on their on their uh, YouTube channel, and I assume that Fabio then has gained the title of like cmon world or galaxy champion so uh, I, I don't know if they've made him a belt yet yeah i feel like he's got to have one of those
2: we should we definitely should
0: you've been a, a developer as well and uh i know it's been a little while since you played but you know those cores the, the core is always there right that that competitive fire inside you so you know we're, we're looking for a contender to maybe challenge and call fabio out here for a game is that is that something you might be interested in? Definitely.
2: I mean, uh, probably he's gonna just beat me like so <laughs> handily, but it's, well, uh, it's it will be a, a fun thing to do. Well,
0: so you know, I think the days! back in the days. Tell me
2: some stories back here. In the the days. I have <laughs> I have one against Fabio, but uh, it was kind of unfair at the time. He was a, he Fabio started as a tester for a song, so uh, I kind of like taught him the game. Yeah. And yeah, at the, at the start, I, I, I won a bit, but after uh, it was impossible, really. He, he's just much better at that silo game than I am, really. We, we got to build you up and get you ready for this,
0: right? So he's got a cool nickname, too. Everyone's calling him Fabio. Ours is the Fury Curry because of his love for Baratheons. Oh, really? What, what do we think? Any, do you got any cool nicknames we can we give you here? Uh, I don't yeah. think so. Right? Like, and now, introducing the former A Song of Ice and Fire lead developer, Weighing in as a game designer for Simon Games, hailing from Brazil, the one, the only, Leo, Mato Leo, Almeida, or something, you know. Oh,
2: I like the idea of that. <laughs> I just... Uh...
0: I don't think I, I don't think one of those. All right, if you're listening, we need a we need a cool a nickname for for Leo here, and we need some lists. We got to get you some ideas of some things you could play against. I'm hopefully nothing too crazy.
2: Okay, yeah, um, give me give me Starks or Lannisters. Okay, Starks or, Lannisters. or Night's Watch. I, 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 or Night's Watch. I love the Free Folk. They're so great.
0: And then I'm like, let's give you some lists, and you go to Starks and Lannisters or I mean, Give me, me the Watch. best.
2: If the best is one of those three, then better. If not, then then the I'll. I'll play Jeez. with the best I'll, I'll, I'll study I'll study for this what did you say that free folk should be the
0: best in your hearts though all right we'll see what we can do so if you're listening make sure you submit some lists in the comments below we'll pass them along to Leo and then uh we gotta we gotta do a call out here for Fabio and and uh see if we can get this game to happen
2: I mean I don't know what's best I know that uh balancing stuff is hard so I, I doubt that all factions now are balanced at the same level
0: Do you think that there can be a perfect state of balance with a game like this? Or is it something that's like always constantly in flux?
2: Well, it depends if you keep launching stuff. Uh, For every faction, it's impossible. Okay. And so is it kind of the expectation is like, yeah, there's going to always be like
0: ebbs and flows of different things that have power. And you just have like a balancing cycle where it's like, yeah, it might be powerful a little bit, but every six months or a year or 12 to 16 months, things get shuffled up a little bit.
2: I think for strategy games, like even chess is not balanced and it's not updated for like (laughs) hundreds of years. So if you, if you make it, so we don't launch any new cards on some ice and fire and we have like 10 years to balance, then sure, I I think it would be balanced. But (laughs) otherwise, I don't think it's possible to have like every single faction to be balanced. It's not possible. That makes
0: sense. I think that's the kind of attitude I have. Sometimes you will get worked up about something being imbalanced or not. And I figure, you know what? If it's that bad, that will get addressed in the next update. And then you try something different. Then And then there'll be something else. And, you know, not worth getting actually emotional or angry about
2: yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think Kurt is a great job from what I've seen. And, like, if you have, like, how many factions are there now? Like, five or six? Eight. Eight? Jeez. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yes. Okay, so from eight, if I, I've played Hearthstone before competitively, or even, like, Magic. Magic have colors. Uh, there are some games that are some, like, 20% or even more. Are not like playable at all. Like Hearthstone is the biggest example of that because sometimes priests were unplayable, warlocks were unplayable. Sometimes only have four classes that are playable, so that's less than half. So yeah, if if there are like four playable factions that are that can compete against each other, even in a like rock paper scissors scenario, I think it's it's a good optimal uh, balance state.
0: It's different though if there's you know because you you invest a lot of money into a faction, right? So like I've got. Yes. Uh... Got some some free folk. You know, does it get worrisome though if it's like, hey, if these are the only four factions that are playable, but like that's not what I invested in,
2: is that a concern? Well, definitely we're looking to balance them. Don't get me wrong. Right. <laughs> the target oh, of, of who's gotcha. balancing is always to make everything balanced. What I'm saying gotcha. is. Uh it's th- not that's not always possible. Right. And it's an course,
0: aspirational balance is an aspirational thing. Some people say that
2: it's a concern. If right. like free focus is not balanced, then definitely Curry's thinking about it and he's doing a great job to balance balance it. All I'm saying is like even in magic, for example, a card gets banned. Like Jace the Mind Sculptor, when it was like standard, it was yep. banned. A lot of people like wasted thousands of dollars on it and it was very frustrating, but it's important to keep the, the the integrity of the game balance right so yeah it will get balanced eventually and eventually like free folk will be one of the four things like that but uh hopefully ideally if you have more time and stop launching stuff it will be easier to uh balance everything but you keep you need to keep launching stuff to keep the community active and everyone like having a fresh feeling of the game right so uh,
0: it's a It's actually really cool to hear your perspective on this kind of being like removed from the game. Right. And just to be clear, you know, your views on balance or what factions are good or you've you've been removed from A Song of Ice and Fire for some time now, right? Since the Free Folk launch. I have
2: no idea what's good
0: or what's bad. You're speaking kind of as an outsider perspective, having had time with the game originally.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, my perspective is more from playing competitive games for all my life, really. So let's get into that. Let's get into uh, that. So,
0: you know, um, you are or were at least a, a competitive player. Uh, you have played Hearthstone at the competitive level and you've been ranked quite highly. That is correct?
2: Yes, that is correct. I have uh, the golden card back, which is rewarded to whoever places really high on a, on a Blizzard organized. And so you've played
0: in like Hearthstone tournaments and you've played in a like really... Uh, intensive
2: experiences i have also not only hearthstone i have also competed in uh, tft i was challenger and won a couple uh local tournaments and also i've played uh Lines of frontera which i was uh second of the americas to get master and also eighth of the world and uh, i've also played like a bunch of the seasonal tournaments so yeah those
0: do you see any crossover from being successful at competitive games and game design skills like do you think being good at games make one makes one better at designing games or is there something else there like sometimes there's this expression like poetry is what's lost in translation like um, is it right? just being good at a game or is there some other like it factor that goes into making games
2: I think actually it's a it's more of a liability than a than advantage really. Uh, for a developer, I think it's they work really well together. For a game designer, it w- was for me a trans- transition that it was a little hard because my focus as a as a professional player, you always try to get the best out of it. You try to min-max stuff and try to figure it out with what you have. Being a game designer, I think one of the best qualities of a game designer is being creative to creative solve like problem solving. When you have a problem, the way I fix stuff is just change the numbers or the text uh, the way a good game designer would do. Of course, With some restrictions, would be just create a new mechanic that would make the game funnier and cooler to play with and making that a little obsolete, the problem, you know? That's really
0: interesting. So, you've been both a designer and a developer. Um, And so, you you know, in Bloodborne, uh, that's a fantastic game. And you were the lead developer on there. So, you're really trying to balance the number side of things. Yes. For Mass Universe, which, you know, we had the privilege to talk with you quite a bit on that, and we got an early copy to play, and honestly, I absolutely loved it. uh, In that, you had to make up mechanics and play it. Um, Both of those games at this stage at least, felt like relatively balanced and also had like a, a really compelling, I don't know, like gameplay loop, I guess I'd say. I don't know. There's like a, a certain thing about them when you're playing where, and I, and I don't even have the words to express it, so maybe you might know better, but it's like when you play a game and there's a, a bit of fun you're doing and the turns like don't take too long and you're always like active. Like when I play Bloodborne, I'm having a lot of fun with the cards, but it doesn't like, when the other players going i'm not like bored <laughs> uh and the same thing was happening with he-man where it was like you had a lot to do but it wasn't too much um you know well, how how are those two experiences so different when you're playing like you know you're making bloodborne working on bloodborne working on massive universe
2: uh well a couple of things are more based on also platform like if you're working on tabletop games like uh board games specifically Mm-hmm. The way for especially downtime, as you're mentioning it, is something that you would have to keep an eye on. So for for Masters of the Universe and Bloodborne, since it's a cooperative game, it, it's it, you don't have really that much downtime, even though you're not playing your turn. Having fast turns really helps, but definitely having new new information coming in all the time and the action of your like partners having influence in your gameplay makes you uh, more entwined in the game and you're paying attention all the time because it matters. For other games like, for example, well, I don't want to call out names, but uh, let's say competitive games that are the turns might be difficult or you have to think a lot mm-hmm. and the information doesn't change very much from, your turn, from this turn to the next, even though it takes like 10 minutes you might be picking up your phone in the middle and that, right. that's something you're not like, you're not, you don't think that's good I don't think that's good so making, like, simple turns and having new information all the time is a good thing for, to, to address that, that problem you are mentioning. Uh, I guess making the game, have, both of the games you mentioned, have a co-op sense, right? Uh, I know in Masters you can play as the, as the nemesis, but then you mm-hmm. have a lot more to think on. Like, you're not playing one turn at, at the whole round because you, you have to play, like, alternatively with the, with the players. Yeah. but but then you still have to pay attention because there's no information coming in for you to plan like for the next card. So, hmm. well, this is becoming very abstract, I think. But uh, the point of it is just there, there are some ways in game design to address a downtime, and that's in both of those games. I think that the way that we do it is by having co-op sense where you want to play like help your friends to play well and make sure that they are going according to the plan you you had, and also have simple turns uh, for you to play. The, The distance between the time you play between your turns is not that long. So you're still compelled to think about the. Game.
0: If people wanted to get into the board game industry, right? You've got a pretty cool job here. Um, you know, is there like a, a hierarchy, a way you work your way up? Like, do you generally try and shoot for becoming a playtester or becoming a developer, or do you just say, you know, I want to design games? Is it like a progression where you move upwards, or are they such niche positions that, like, you know, maybe you want to specialize in just being a developer?
2: There are niche positions, but about like getting to work, I say there's multiple ways you can do it. In Team 1, I think we have great examples. We have Ruger, which works on the elite team, where he is very close to the academic part of things. He, I learned that there are actually a lot of classes and things that you can do for games as a whole, not only board games, which I think that, that that's a path you can take. Oh, so go to, like, a school to major in board games? Yeah, things like that, yes. Do do a lot of the people you interact with take that route? No, that's not that common. That's that's the thing with uh, games, I think. There isn't a clear path as, like, being a doctor or a, or a lawyer, things like that. For, for the most part, for the most of it, since it's also a new, like, kind of work, job, title, usually people just do it, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. For even, like, if you want to apply to jobs at like any major companies they don't even like require for you to have like a bachelor's degree or anything you usually just need to have experience so in order to do that you just need to do it you know like Hmm. i I know like some people in the company they just did games sent to apply to some companies to to know if like to even get a game published you know yeah. Like you have Jordi, who works at Simon, He was uh, nominated for Kinderspiel uh, with cartographers. And he, before he he was just a freelancer designer before enters, entering Simon, so he just did games and sent to some companies to see if they wanted to publish this game. So I think that's the most common way, really, from the ones for, from people I know. But there are also ways like uh, Fabio, for example, which he was a playtester in an established company like Simon, and then he Got up and become a developer, and now is where he is. But I believe, also,
0: uh, Fabio might have even worked at like Ubisoft, or he's he's had a history in like other games, essentially.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, definitely in the in the same world helps definitely. Uh, but especially like specifically on the game developer slash designer part, I think it's mostly. There are like these paths, but I think the biggest one is just doing it really because there are a lot of things you don't really know until you actually get to it. I remember, I know that like we get, we used to get like hundreds, uh, hundreds might be too much, but like uh, we, we got a lot of like applies for games for us to publish. And so many of them were so bad. Like, oh, I think they are game designers, and st- but they never did a game. And once they do, they face so many problems. Sometimes they don't even know the problem exists. And you just get better by doing more and play testing and seeing what you could do, could have done better and getting feedback so i'd say if you want to do it you just have to start doing really Uh, there's no other way to put it Uh, and to be honest there isn't like a clear path which is uh, which is why it's not a like it's not established job i'd say it's not a career that's so easily like safe
0: (laughs) makes sense so a little bit you know maybe a little bit of luck but that Mm -hmm. sounds awesome well you know congratulations for the work you've done and, and and how you've established yourself You've worked on some really, you know, great games, and like I mentioned before, A *Song of West and Fire* and *The Free Folk* have brought me lots of joy, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, *Bloodborne*. And now I'm really excited for this this uh, Master Universe Clash for Attorney game. So, you know, lots more to come for that. And, you know, thanks so much for taking the time to come on here and, uh, you know, kind of catch up. I really appreciate, like, your openness and willingness to, sc- willingness to discuss all these things. No problem. Do you, uh, are you still playing card games these
2: days? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I play more strategy games. Nowadays, I actually don't play much. Like, after playing competitively...
0: Things start losing much fun. Uh, We did this thing, uh, it's been a couple months now, we did a Patreon play where I took some Patreon members and we played Among Us with Fabio and Michael. And Michael just like brutally murdered me. He got, he was it first. And he killed me in the first round, and it was horrible. But I was thinking, man, I wonder if I could like. He might be listening to this. I don't know. We could we could call him out in a card game, but then I could have you secretly be coaching me so that I could beat him. Yeah, what uh, we'll the see? All right, well maybe we'll pick a game off air and let's see if I can make this happen somehow here. Right?
2: Yeah, any game. I think I can beat Michael. Oh my, <laughs> oh
0: my gosh! We got, <laughs> oh man! All right. If we never hear from you again, we know what happened. It you know, will be. <laughs> you have a long history of sort of uh, teasing and and, and uh, pushing back on Michael here, so we saw a yeah. little bit of that. In the Masters Universe. Yeah, I'm glad you're keeping him on his toes here.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Fabio on on song, but keep an eye on me
0: bro <laughs> oh, there we go all right well thank you so much for coming on and if people were listening send us some list suggestions so that you know so that uh leo here can challenge fabio
2: yeah whatever okay. won the latest sermon. i'm down all for right it. Oh, i just
0: said all right i just net that net deck you won all right yeah, yeah that yeah. never works for me if i don't like know how the units like really work um like i've got to be I, i'm more of like a playoff feel and like get used to moving things. Like I'm way better off taking something I played a ton of times than like, a. I I mean, you know, I'll, study. Me I'll study. I'll <laughs> right. study. I'll study, but yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll get those lists coming in and thanks so much for coming on. And in the meantime, I hope you get your miniatures on the table. Uh-huh.